0: Tonight's scripture reading is Mark 4:26-34. And he said, "The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces it by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come." And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like the grain of a mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. With many such parables he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Dan. Well, good evening and welcome to Disciples Church. How are we? Good, it's good to see you. Thanks so much for uh, being here on a, on a really beautiful evening. Glad you were all able to make it out, and again, happy Father's Day uh, to the fathers in our congregation, um, both earthly fathers and, and spiritual influences in our lives. We're so thankful for you and thankful for uh, God's blessing on you. Hope you've enjoyed your day. Open in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, my name, by the way, is Jonathan, and it's good to have you with us tonight. As we come to this text, we're continuing on in a series of parables that Jesus has given where he's explaining the nature of his kingdom. And so I want you just to imagine, if you can, uh, tonight as we come into this text, imagine what it must have been like to be a child who grew up in Judaism at roughly the time that Christ comes onto the scene. I mean, the people of Israel had heard for generations about the coming of the Messiah. They had heard for generations about the anticipated king who was going to lead Israel into prosperity and freedom. The one who was going to bring restoration and prominence to the chosen people of God. So growing up, these children would have heard prophecies about the kingdom. They would have sung songs about the kingdom. They would have held out hope for the kingdom. They would have been looking for the Messiah, this one who was going to restore everything. And now in this moment, we know, looking back onto the scene, that that person had arrived, that Jesus himself, the creator God, had stepped into time, had stepped into space, had, had become one of his creation. To begin the work of establishing his kingdom, that the kingdom of God, in the words of Jesus Christ, was now at hand. But the kingdom that Jesus comes to bring is not the one that they expected, and he did not bring it in a way that they had expected. The Israelites were expecting a king who would be a military conqueror, a political liberator. They wanted someone who was going to be a bringer of peace. And indeed, Jesus, in fact, came as a conqueror. He came as a liberator. He came as a peacemaker, but not in the way that they expected. See, they wanted a political revolution, but they needed a spiritual one. And Jesus, coming onto this scene, knowing what the expectations of his people were, having grown up in Jewish customs and in Jewish culture, would have known what they were looking for in a leader. He knew the expectations that they had, but he didn't indulge their nationalistic fervor. He didn't lead a march onto Jerusalem. He didn't indulge in their desire for prominence in the region and and lead them into military conquest. For being the Messiah who is expected, Jesus came in a most unexpected way. And in trying to communicate the nature of the true messianic kingdom that he had come to establish, Jesus chose to tell stories. Last week, Dave defined parables as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. In other words, it's a simple story that contains deep spiritual truths. These are veiled stories that required spiritual revelation. They required the Holy Spirit to to open up the eyes of the one who was hearing the story, to open their ears to hear and their minds to understand the truth of what was being declared in these stories. And without that spiritual revelation, there was no truth to be grasped. And there's all kinds of reasons that Jesus did this, that Jesus, who really was a master storyteller, chose to teach this way. And certainly part of that was to potentially conceal truth from people who otherwise would have used that information to hurt him. Perhaps it was to hide truth from people so that they would not be accountable for the things that they otherwise would have heard but not understood. But in the midst of all of that, the These stories went to reveal truths to people on a very deep level. And in Mark chapter 4, we've been looking at these series of vignettes, starting in Mark 4, 1 through 20, with the parable of the soils, moving on last week with the passage that Dave preached on, Mark 4, 21 through 25, the parable of the lamps. And today, we end this series of stories with the final two parables, the parable of the seeds and the parable of the mustard seed. And Mark records probably just a smattering, just a handful of the stories that Jesus had told at this time. We know from our study of Mark going back before the lockdown um, that, that he, is, he is a writer of brevity. He wants to keep everything as concise as he possibly can. And so it's likely that Jesus probably told many more stories than just these ones that are recorded for us in Mark chapter 4. But there are two remaining that we're going to look at today. And, and the re- ideas that are revealed in this text are really profound in their simplicity. And so look with me, if you will, at Mark 4, beginning in verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts, it, he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. What I want you to notice first about this text is the very ordinary nature of the work that's happening here. There's all kinds of ways that Jesus, in his wisdom and in his insight, could have chose to try to describe and define the kingdom of God. But he chooses perhaps the most ordinary example that these people could have possibly imagined. He chooses to define it and to explain it by the means of a man who goes out to plant seed. Now, I'm sure in a room like this, there are many people who are gardeners. In fact, I know some of you are gardeners because you've told me about it. But I'll just say up front as a bit of an admission, I'm not a gardener, not by nature um, and, and certainly by choice. There's just all kinds of things about gardening that, I, that intrigue me, but I've never really taken the time to get into it. I don't really have experience with it. So if I talk a little bit um, out of my head when it comes to this stuff, you'll understand why. But I probably, pre- probably reached the, the peak of my gardening expertise in second grade. I remember in my second grade classroom, my teacher, uh, one day we arrived in the scene and and as she begins to explain the things we were going to do that day, um, she told us that we were going to be tasked with a gardening project. And so we were all given Dixie cups and we were all given a little bit of topsoil and then we had to uh, burrow a little trench in the middle of the cup to make room for the seed and then we covered up the seed again with the dirt and we poured a little bit of water on top. And I remember my excitement as I went home and came back the next day, my excitement and the thrill of being able to walk into this room and to be able to see the magnificent growth and progress in my carefully cultivated Dixie cup. And of course, as I ran into the classroom and ran over to the shelf next to the window where those little cups were held, I remember being uh, just so full of anticipation, and I ran over there, and what did I see but just dirt in a cup? And of course, I learned what anybody who's gardened or anybody who's farmed already knows, which is that the results of planting are not always immediately evident. It takes time for seeds to ultimately take root and then begin to grow. But as we think about that idea within the context of Jesus' discussion of the kingdom, I wonder how often we approach the work of the kingdom with that very same childish expectation. Where we expect the gospel to make an immediate impact every time it's extended. What we find in this text is that even when it looks like there's nothing happening, even when there's nothing above the surface that you can see, even though there's no external evidence that anything is changing or that anything is growing, there is something steadily and silently happening underneath the surface. And notice the description. Uh, Notice the description that Jesus gives here. He mentions a man who's spreading the seed, but his identity is given no attention. He's just kind of an average, everyday individual. His identity actually in this context doesn't matter at all. And that's because the emphasis of this story is on the power of the seed itself. I mean, when you think about a kingdom in classic terms or in a classic sense, you think of the exercise of power. You think of organization. You think of structure. You think of effort. You think of control, but Jesus is saying, the way that I am bringing my kingdom into account is through the hearts of individual people and through the planting and the growth of the word of God. And look how powerful this illustration is in verse 27. This is my favorite phrase in this whole passage. He sleeps and rises after having planted the seed. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. So think about this, the farmer goes out and he plants the seed, But then what does he do? He just goes about his business. He's got other responsibilities that he has to do. He's got kids he needs to take to school. Uh, He's got chores around the house. He's running errands and doing all of the things that are the everyday business of his life. The work now has been done. The seed has been planted and he's going on with everything else he's responsible for. And the whole time that he's going on about his business, there is something, something happening underneath the surface of that field. So think of, it, think of it this way. I mean, we can see this very easily in the summer in Wisconsin. When you drive past a farmer's field in the spring, you can see freshly turned dirt and, and you can smell the fertilizer or the manure in the air. And a few weeks later, you may start to notice that there's been something that was growing that initially was so small, it didn't even catch your attention. And then as the weeks pass and as the season grows warmer, you begin to notice that your vision through that field is entirely obscured by everything that has grown up in the middle of it. Have you ever had that experience? All of a sudden, you're like, man, there was just nothing in that field a little bit ago, and I could see the houses that were behind there, and now there's this full cornfield grown up, and I can't see anything through there. See, even though it may not be visible, there is profound internal transformation taking place and in the very same way when the seed of the gospel begins to take root and is planted in someone's life there may be initially very little evidence of change but something radical is happening under the surface and the question then that this verse demands an answer to is this what did the farmer do to bring about the growth and the answer comes back nothing He planted the seed, and then according to verse 27, the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. See, the promise is that the power is in the seed and that the growth comes as God cultivates the soil of the human heart. So let me just throw out this question for your consideration. Do we really believe that? Do we actually trust that? Do we believe that the true power that is necessary for the change and growth of the human heart and the human soul is firmly and reliably in the hands of God? How often in our effort to do right and even in our effort to be faithful How often do we try to cajole others into believing what we believe instead of simply continuing to be faithful in proclaiming and trusting God with the results? And when you try to manipulate circumstances or manipulate people or manipulate understanding to force a result in somebody else's life, it's like running to that Dixie cup day after day, digging up the seed to see what's really happening under the surface. You're not giving it time to take root. You're constantly messing with it. There isn't an understanding that ultimately it is God who is in charge of what happens next. And this is what we find in 1 Corinthians, beginning in chapter one. I actually want you to turn there, if you wouldn't mind taking the time to do that in your Bible, because there's a couple different portions in 1 Corinthians that I want to look at, and I want you to see them for yourself. But beginning first, in 1 Corinthians chapter one, and in verse 18. And here's what Paul writes in that text. He says, for the word of the cross, that's the story of the gospel, Jesus Christ's death on our behalf, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And for those of you who maybe didn't grow up in a Christian home, or maybe you didn't grow up as a believer in Jesus Christ, you understand very well the first portion of that verse, that the, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Where you looked at someone who is a believer in Jesus Christ and you just couldn't see what the attraction was. You just couldn't see why this actually mattered to people. Why is this actually affecting your everyday life? Why does this actually affect anything that you do? You're telling me that every Sunday you get up early to get ready and go to a service or that in the middle of the summer on a Father's Day you're going to drive to a church at 6 in the evening. Don't you have better things to do with your weekend? But to those of us who are being saved... It is the power of God. A realization of something wholly different than we've ever experienced outside of our faith in Christ. But understand then the implication of what Jesus is saying in Mark 4 and of what Paul is implying in 1 Corinthians 1, that the gospel is not a baseball bat to be used to beat people into submission nor is it a bait and switch with which we lure people into believing with the promise of some sort of earthly good. The gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful enough on its own to bring about illumination and salvation in the lives of the hearers, and that power rests completely in the hands of the Father through the application of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul addresses again later in 1 Corinthians in chapter three, and you can flip over just a couple pages to that text. Divisions have begun to pop up within the Corinthian church, and believers are beginning to identify themselves according to their particular hero of the faith, so you have people within the same Christian church, some of who are saying, well, I'm, gonna, I, I'm a follower of Paul. I was baptized by him. I was saved under his ministry. He's kind of my hero of the faith. And other people are saying, well, I'm a follower of Apollos, this other famous preacher at this point in time. And so these divisions have begun to spring up between the people. And Paul, in addressing this, uses a fascinating use of language to describe his answer. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? And I just want to stop there real quick and point out to you, something to you. Do you notice that he doesn't say, who is Apollos? Or who is Paul? No, he's using the, the, the neuter article here. Instead of saying who, he's saying what? He's saying, let me, let me show you how little this has to do with me. I don't even want you to see me as a person in this moment. I just want you to see me as the agent that God chooses to use. And he continues, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And unless you begin to think, that your evangelism doesn't matter, that you don't have a responsibility in a ministry. He goes on to say this, he who plants and he who waters are one and each will will receive his wages according to his labor. So the work that we do in proclaiming the gospel is good and necessary and right. And in fact, it's recognized by God himself. But here's what he's saying. You cannot carry the burden for someone else's growth and change. You can't. It is a painful and brutal fool's errand. And when you begin to try to take the responsibility for something that belongs only to God, it means by by necessity that you're going to have to take responsibility with how things turn out. But by understanding that we're not called to carry that burden, that the invitation God has given us is to be messengers and to trust him with ultimately what he does with those things, that is a gift. It's a gift. Let me just try to illustrate this in the best way that I can. So I grew up um, in a Christian home. My dad is a uh, pastor, retired now, but was a pastor for um, 30 some odd years. Um, And my parents were both believers and my siblings were all believers growing up. And so I, I grew up in this environment where I knew a lot about the Bible. And not only church, which um, for us was Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night, but in addition to that, I went through Christi- to Christian schools um, from kindergarten through my senior year of high school and then ultimately went to a Christian college. And so I had a lot of exposure to faith, a lot of exposure to religion, a lot of exposure to good, right, biblical teaching. But for me, very, very little of that got beneath the surface. So I got very good at understanding kind of the game of religion, knowing what to say and knowing to whom I needed to say it and knowing how I needed to act in a particular environment and what things I could get away with and secret and what things I was going to get caught for if they were found out and all of those sorts of things. It was all just a game to me. And what it led me to was a place in my life where I was ultimately bitter against God himself where knowing all kinds of things about who God is and what Christ had done for me and what he'd called me ultimately to do meant very little to me. And for me, ultimately, it wasn't until I got to college where there was this culmination of different people and events and different things that God used where all of a sudden the light flipped. Where the things I'd been hearing about all my life and the things I'd been seeing in other people suddenly made sense to me in a way that it never had before. And so though I had grown up in the church my whole life, it wasn't until I was about 19 years old that those things actually started to matter. Now here's, here's why I mention all of that the responsibility that my parents had and the responsibility that my Sunday school teachers had and the pastors that I heard growing up, the responsibility that they had was to proclaim the gospel. And any parent in this room would know that if you could make the decision of faith on behalf of your kids, you absolutely would. But here's the truth, you can't. And what God is saying in a verse like this is, would you trust me enough with the results to let go? to continue to faithfully proclaim the gospel and share the gospel and talk about the goodness of who Jesus Christ is and his love, his love for his people and his pursuit of sinners and those who've been rebels at war against him their whole lives, but would you, but would you just trust him with the results of it? Now, now, cards on the table, my kids are young, right? So I'm saying this and it's, it's fairly easy for me to say, and I know for others of you in this room, that's, that's not your story. And you're in a situation like that. But understand, for me in that moment in college, when all of these things came together, when this culmination of spiritual influences affected me in such a way that I began to understand the gospel, prior to that moment, there was no intellectual argument that you could have made. There was no guilt trip that you could have put on me. There was nothing you could have done that would have changed my mind or my heart. But when the Holy Spirit began to work in my life, all of those conversations, all of that effort that faithful people had put into my life for years suddenly began to spring up. You've heard us use a phrase that we're fond of at Disciples Church and it's originally by um, a pastor in Texas, but he said it this way. He said, parents, when it comes to your children, your responsibility is to put the kindling of the gospel around their hearts and to pray for the Holy Spirit to ignite it. And for me, that moment didn't come until college, but all of a sudden when that happened, all of these things suddenly burst into flame. See, it only takes a small seed of the gospel to get in and lodged in the heart for that work of regeneration to take place. So my encouragement to you, for those who have struggled for months, years, decades, To see people that you love not respond to the call of the gospel, take heart that God is still in control, that he's still sovereign, that he's still good, and that he still loves. And Christian, understand what this is saying. Your responsibility is to spread the seed of the gospel and the responsibility for response and growth in the life of someone else belongs to God. Trust in the freedom of that trust in the freedom of that. This is what Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 4, which Dave referenced last week, and I'm going to point you to verse 5 of 2 Timothy chapter 4, which says this, as for you, Christian brother, sister, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, listen to these words, fulfill your ministry. I mean, when we think about ministry, typically people think of what I'm doing up here right now. They think of somebody standing in front of a room that's doing a formal function of church leadership. So we think of a pastor preaching or somebody leading worship, or or we think about various other elements of what happens within the context of a church. But understand this, if you're a Christian in this room, do you understand that God has called you, that he has equipped you, and that he has placed you where you are perfectly for your ministry? He's given you his word and he's given you his spirit. He's given you everything that you need to accomplish the ministry that he's called you to. And the fact that we're told that the kingdom power for transformation and salvation belongs to God means that he is going to use the very particular ways that He has wired you with your interests and the way that your mind works and your vocabulary and your experience to plant that seed in others. And so often within Christianity, we tend to think about evangelism in context of programs, methodologies, means of evangelism, So we go through this talk and we talk through these points and we ask these particular questions and we answer these particular objections and then when all is said and done, if you followed the formula right, somebody makes a life-changing decision. That's just not how it works. And it's not to say that programs can't be helpful and that books aren't useful or any of those things, but what it does in the midst of all of that is it robs people of who you actually are. It robs people of your own experience of your own knowledge of who God is and what he's done. God intends to use you with all the ways that he's made you and all of the things that make you unique to continue moving his kingdom. It's as simple as opening up your Bible and sharing with others who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And then at the end of the day, like this person who sows the seed, you go to bed confident that the power of the gospel rests in the hands of God and that he alone can cultivate the soil and allow the gospel to take root. And here's the amazing thing. In the upside down nature of Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom that begins in the hearts of people will grow larger than we can possibly imagine. Look what he says in verse 30. And he said, with what can we, can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now understand this, um, Jesus here is not writing um, as, as an authority on horticulture, he's writing here in, in, in use of an idiom, which is at this time there was some sort of a saying where people would say, oh that thing over there is as small as a mustard seed. So he's not declaring that, that, that biologically the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds. This is one of the silly arguments that people would bring up about a passage like this to try to um, ignore the truth of it. But what he's saying is this, ultimately, and this quote is not original with me. I wish I knew who to attribute it to. But it's the idea that a little becomes a lot in the hands of God. That something that is so infinitesimally small is the very same thing that God uses to create something that is bigger than we could possibly Imagine. And so mustard seeds were known in this period for being this very, very tiny seed that in a short period of time could grow into a tree that was 10 to 12 feet tall with large leaves and branches that extended far away from its trunk, large enough that birds would begin to nest in it. And Jesus is saying, that is what my kingdom is like. Something that begins in the hearts of people, spreads so rapidly and becomes so large that you're shocked by what God has done with it. Think about all of this in the context of the audience that Jesus is speaking to. I mean, if you remember the earliest chapters uh, of Mark, if you can remember back that far to the beginning of this year, which seems like years ago, if you can remember back to when we were talking about those opening chapters, the disciples were in constant flux emotionally. You see them thrilled and amped up and excited because there are massive crowds of people that are beginning to come here. Jesus preach, and, and they're seeing him perform miracles, and they're seeing all kinds of amazing, incredible things happen, and, and so they're amped up and juiced up and energized by what they're seeing, but then they turn around in the very next moment, and the crowds have dissipated and left, and they're flummoxed. What is it that these people do not understand? And then the crowds grow once again, and you see them energized once again, and then they have an encounter with Jesus' family where they're sitting there observing as Jesus' own family is telling him, man, do you have delusions of grandeur? Is there something wrong with you, Jesus? And again, they're disheartened. They kind of have this constant back and forth in their lives. And perhaps they were starting to feel, even at this early stage, that the gospel was diminishing. That's speculation on my part, by the way. But perhaps that's what they were beginning to feel. And I would just say to you, perhaps you're beginning to feel the same way. I mean, when you follow the news and you see the reports of the condition of our country, perhaps you begin to feel hopeless. Perhaps you're tempted to hold a defeatist attitude or to want to retrench and hide away from the world. Do you understand, brother or sister, that in every generation since the disciples there have been times and places in which Christians felt like this is it. This is where it all falls. This is how it crumbles. This is where Christianity fades. And yet, 2,000 years later, the gospel of Jesus continues, continues to live on just as relevant and transformative as it's ever been. See, the kingdoms of this world rise and fall. Some kingdoms grew so large that the people that lived in them presumed that their kingdom would last forever. And when you think about sayings like all roads lead to Rome, or the sun never sets on the British Empire. Those statements used to mean something in this world, but now they are just the obscure slogans of faded empires. Brothers and sisters, I'm immeasurably grateful for our country. I'm thankful for its promise, I'm thankful for its ideals, I'm thankful for its place in our world, and I pray that the freedom and the liberties that we believe in and fight for will continue. But understand that our ultimate hope cannot be in our system of government. As Christians, we are first citizens of a spiritual kingdom, and we are strangers and aliens in this place, and the kingdom of which we are a part never fails and never fades. It grows and it expands over places and time and it has a boundless and eternal future. There is a hope that we have in the kingdom of God that does not fade and will not pass. And look how Jesus finishes this story, it says, or rather how Mark finishes the story, it says, with many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. So understand the context of what that means. There were those there who pulled away from Jesus and never understood the meaning of what he said. And there were those who drew near and understood everything. Do you understand the implications of a text like this? That kingdom work is eternal work and it's valuable even when we can't see the progress of it in our short, brief lives. Famously, through the course of Christian history, this has been the case. You think of someone like, someone like William Carey who left Britain to begin preaching the gospel in India. And he preached and he ministered and he evangelized and preached and ministered and evangelized for seven years before seeing his first convert. And now as we sit, a mere few hundred years later, India's Christian population sits at over 70 million. With 26 million of them claiming evangelical faith, and William Carey having gone on to be known as the father of the modern missions movement. We think of individuals like Adoniram Judson, the first great American missionary who left his home to be a missionary in Burma, and just like Carey, he ministered in Burma for seven years before seeing his first convert, and he is now known as the father of the American Baptist Missions movement. Because today in Burma there are 4.5 million people who claim the Christian faith. Two and a half million of them roughly would believe the same way that we do theologically. So this Father's Day is special to me for a few reasons. Um, it's special to me because um, I love being a dad and I love my kids and all those kinds of things. But it's also my first um, Father's Day since my, my daughter was born. So um, uh, we named our daughter Evan Elliott. Um, and I know what you're thinking. That doesn't sound very feminine. It's okay. That's all right. Um, so Evan, Evan is named after her grandmother um, on, on my wife's side. Um, that's where, where we got the name Evan. It was in honor of, of Jessica's grandmother. Uh, and then we named her middle name Elliot after Elizabeth Elliott. Um, and the reason we chose Elizabeth Elliot um, is one, it kind of matches up with our theme, which is that we give our kids middle names of theologians. And so we wanted a, uh, we wanted a woman who was a theologian to kind of um, bear that torch um, for us. And so we chose Elizabeth Elliot for that reason. But the, Elizabeth Elliot's life is incredible for, for a lot of reasons. Um, but most famously, what, what Elizabeth Elliot is known for is what her and her husband, Jim Elliot, did very early on in their lives in the 50s. Um, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot had gone down to Ecuador to reach a tribe of people called the Aka Indians. And the Aka's were known to be a savage and brutal people. In fact, the word Aka is Ecuadorian slang for savage. The name of their tribe literally means savage. And these people were known for consistently murdering anybody outside of their tribe who they came in contact with. They were known for murdering people within their tribe. They were a violent and brutal people and they were a people who had been unreached with the gospel. And So Jim and Elizabeth Elliot went with their, uh, went with several of their friends down to Ecuador uh, began to deliver gifts uh, to the, to the Aka tribe, began to, to drop things from an airplane to them, different, different kinds of gifts that they would need, everyday um, utilities and toiletries and all kinds of other, um, all kinds of other things that these people could use. And after doing this for a significant amount of time, they decided they needed to approach on foot and actually make that first contact. And so as these five men, um, leaving their wives behind them, as these five men landed on a beach um, via plane to come reach the Aka Indians, they approached them and, and at first received what seemed to be a friendly greeting. And as the Aka Indians approached closer and closer to them, it became very clear very quickly that they had violent intentions and all five of those men were murdered on that beach. Elizabeth Elliot, Uh, now with her young 10-month-old daughter, decided that God had called her to continue to minister to the Aka Indians. And so after having her husband and some of her closest friends murdered by this tribe, she stayed behind to continue to minister and evangelize to them. And slowly but surely, they began to start breaking through the wall that had kept these people at a distance. And they saw their first convert, and then they saw another convert, and then all of a sudden more and more people were coming to know Jesus Christ. And things progressed so rapidly in such an amazing way that one of the men who was killed on that beach, a man named Nate Saint, his son, Steve, who is now living among the Akkas, really as one of the Akkas, happened to be baptized by the very man who murdered his father. And as if that's not enough, as the Akkas begin to experience this radical transformation of the gospel, they change their name from, Ak- from Akka to Harani. Because they said, we don't even wanna be associated with that savage lifestyle anymore. Jim is very famous for that story, but he's also very famous for one particular quote which many if not most of you will have heard. And the quote that he gave is this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Brothers and sisters, we are part of a kingdom that can never be lost and can never be taken. And so as we go throughout our daily lives, as we interact with those who don't know Jesus Christ, as we love on our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our children and our parents and those that we come in contact with daily, in those moments where life gets difficult and you begin to question God's sovereignty or you begin to question his goodness or whether or not he hears or knows. And if you begin to even ask the question, is this kingdom work worth it? The answer comes back resoundingly, absolutely. Though you may or may not get to see the results in this life. And even though you may not see those results, you can be sure of your labor because the seed that is sown is imperishable and cultivated by a gardener who is sovereign and loving. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is an imperishable seed. God, we thank you that your word never returns void, that it's never wasted and it's never useless that it always affects and impacts the heart of people. God, we thank you that the work, the work that Christ did on the cross brought us into your kingdom. And that you've now called us to be laborers in it. And God, I thank you that we can work faithfully, daily, in full confidence that that work is never wasted because of who you are. God, help us not to cling so tightly to the pleasantries and the passing happiness of this life that we miss the eternal work to which you've called us. God, help us to find solace, to find peace, to find rest. And the fact that you who began a good work in us is faithful to bring it to completion. So help us to lovingly use the stories that you've given us, the gifts that you've given us, the skill sets. God, even the things about us that we may not like, would you use them for your glory? And through those things may many come to know you who don't know you yet. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.